You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we are thankful for the beautiful day outside, for the blessing that it is to be called your people and to be able to gather together under your name and your banner before your word. We pray for your blessing upon this time, and we pray for clarity both in the teaching and in the listening, and that you would be glorified, that you would stretch our hearts and our imaginations, our minds, and our souls here today. We pray that you would be pleased with what we do, how we study, how we think, and may you be glorified here through all of this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, the Lord didn't answer our prayers and just got better the week after I had taught the first half of what I'm doing today. So you, most of you probably don't even remember what the first half of what I'm doing was. Does anybody remember? Sort of. Yeah, it was questions. There were questions that we raised. We were talking about the doctrine of bodily resurrection. You remember we went through all of the Old Testament passages that deal with the bodily resurrection. We kept in mind two things. Number one, there is a... A progress to, there is a progress to what is revealed so that the farther back you go into the Old Testament, the, the less knowledge or the less revelation you have. But as you progress through time, as you progress through scripture and through God's revelation, more information is constantly being added. And it's that way with all of the doctrines. In the Old Testament, the Trinity was just a seed doctrine, as it were. You can see it there. If you know what to look for, you can see references to the plurality of God's nature. But in the New Testament, it sort of comes into technicolor, as it were, in high definition. Same thing with the bodily resurrection. The first occurrence, everybody remember what the first chronological, chronologically speaking, the first reference to bodily resurrection was? In the book of Job. Very good. Job. Where Job says, I know that when this flesh is destroyed, that I will stand in my flesh and I will see God, and it will be me and not another. My eyes will behold my Redeemer when he takes his stand upon the earth. So that was first chronologically, and then we sort of made our way chronologically through the Old Testament and saw that as as time went on, more information was revealed about this bodily resurrection, what form it would take, who would be resurrected, how and when. Um, we saw David look forward to his own resurrection. We looked at Isaiah's reference to the resurrection of Christ. We saw um, uh, the book of Daniel, where Daniel speaks of the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. And then when you get into the New Testament, of course, all of that comes to full blossom, full um, expression, so to speak, where Jesus says there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust, and it will be a bodily resurrection. And then Paul later on explains that that resurrection will be um, take place in stages. There is the first resurrection, the second resurrection, the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous, Jesus Christ himself being the first fruits of that, and then there are others in this resurrection of the righteous, which is to follow. And then the second resurrection, which is the resurrection to judgment or the resurrection of the unrighteous, the unjust, that occurs later on. And then we looked at the chronology of that in Revelation chapter 20. The last time we were together, I kind of went through that rather quickly because I wanted to get to the end of Revelation. I skipped over a whole bunch of questions that were asked, or we dealt with them very quickly. Um, what was the nature of the resurrection body? We looked at that very briefly in 1 Corinthians 15. What form will the resurrection take? When is this going to happen? What will our bodies be like? Things like that. So today we're going to kind of pick up where we left off. So turn to Revelation chapter 20. No. 
Oh, right in the window. Is it is it glaring off the top of my head? <laughs> is that better? Okay. What'd you say? Makes me invisible. All right. There we go. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Now, my take on the book of Revelation is that the book of Revelation is, is laid out chronologically. Chronologically. That is one thing follows upon another. And that it is John's revelation of the things that will take place in a chronological order. So when we get to... Did the music stop and I didn't hear it? Everybody's changing places. If anybody else needs to switch places, now would be the time to do it since... Jess is bacon. Lanny, why don't you and Jess switch places? So all the cold people are over here. Yeah. <laughs> Okie dokie. We were... I had suggested earlier that you turn to Revelation chapter 20, so we're going to start there. This happens after the tribulation, and we're just going to look real quickly at the resurrections that take place here, and then we're going to, I'm going to talk about a couple of the implications of bodily resurrection, and then we'll sort of have a little, little question and answer about bodily resurrection, what it means. Revelation 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the chain, the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, I want somebody here. Um, Lanny, will you count the number of times that thousand years is mentioned in the passage? Okay? All right. Number two, and he held, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed is the holy, a blessed and holy is the one who has part in this first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, Lanny, how many times has the term thousand years been mentioned? Seven times in how many verses? That was easier to count, right? Because you just had to look at where we stopped and <clears throat> since we started at verse one. Okay, thousand years is a thousand years. I don't believe it's figurative of a long period of time. I don't believe it's indefinite. I believe the Spirit of God told us a thousand years and he repeated it just so we would know it's a thousand years. Like in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints looked forward to a reign of the Messiah on this earth from Jerusalem, a physical reign in which he would rule and reign in justice and in righteousness they knew that there would be a kingdom. They did not know how long this kingdom would last. John reveals to us how long the kingdom is going to last. It's going to last a thousand years. It's there by intention and by design. It's not figurative, metaphorical, symbolic, spiritual, anything. It's a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. 
Now, before that thousand-year reign of Christ takes place, there is a resurrection. It is the first resurrection. It is the resurrection of the just. That is when all of those who have been beheaded during the previous period of time for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, they are resurrected and they receive their resurrected bodies. After the thousand years are completed, there is another resurrection that we're going to read about beginning in verse 7. So there are two resurrections. The first is the first resurrection. The first resurrection is a bodily resurrection, and it is the resurrection of the just. The second resurrection is a bodily resurrection. It is a resurrection of the unjust or the wicked, the, the damned, the unrighteous. So if to lay it out chronologically, we have all of the Old Testament saints who look forward to this messianic kingdom. They're waiting for that to come. They never saw it in their own lifetime. They died having never seen what they were promised. Then you go all the way through the Old Testament period into the New Testament period. You have the church now existing, and saints are living, and saints are dying. People are going to sleep, going to be with the Lord. Their bodies are going into the dirt. We still know reign of Christ, still no uh, millennial reign, the, no physical messianic kingdom on this earth until after the tribulation. Now, we looked last week, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, that there is a resurrection of the just takes place. That takes place in basically sort of three stages, if you will. Jesus Christ himself, getting his resurrected body, is the first fruits of that resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. Then there is the, the next phase of that resurrection takes place at the rapture, 1 Corinthians 15, when we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who are asleep, but we will be instantly transformed, and this mortal must put on immortality, and this perishable must put on the imperishable, and so we will always be with the Lord. So that is when we receive our resurrected bodies. If we are alive, when the Lord comes back, then we receive it at the rapture. And all of the old, all of the New Testament saints who have died since the time of Christ receive their resurrected bodies at the rapture. But then you have a period of time after that, before the establishment of the kingdom, when the church is gone, where you have believers in Christ who are dying. When do they receive their resurrected bodies? Revelation chapter 20, what we just read, right? Those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus received their resurrected bodies prior to the Old Test, prior to the millennial reign. Now, it's my belief that that includes also this resurrection at this point, right before the millennial reign of Christ, includes all the Old Testament saints as well. Why would I say that? Because if the Old Testament saints do not enter into the Messianic kingdom to enjoy that kingdom, then they will never see what was promised to them in the Old Testament. Abraham looked forward in faith. David looked forward in faith. Noah, Job, these men looked forward in faith to standing on the earth and seeing their Redeemer with their own eyes and enjoying that kingdom, that bliss, that lifting of the curse, as it were, and that reign of the Messiah, the Son of God. They looked forward to that. They died never having received that. So when will they receive what they were promised? In the millennial reign of Christ, and they are resurrected before that, and they enter into the millennium in resurrected bodies with the church saints. So we will, for a thousand years, live here on earth, Jesus Christ himself being king in Jerusalem, and we will live and we will dwell and we will rule and reign with him for a thousand-year period of time, with Noah and Moses and Abraham and David and Isaac and Jacob and all the other Old Testament saints. Jess. Is 33 slower or faster? Because, <laughs> see, I, I don't remember the 3345. <laughs> go ahead, go back where? Okay. Prior to the tribulation, prior to the tribulation, I believe that is when the rapture occurs. The rapture, the snatching away of the saints. When those who are alive and remain will not be perceived, those who have fallen asleep, those who have fallen asleep will be resurrected. They will come out of the graves, instantly be transformed. 
We, if we are alive and remain at that time, we will not experience death. We will go from this body into a resurrected body in the twinkling of an eye and be snatched up and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's First Thessalonians chapter 4. So when the Lord comes back, if I am dead, my spirit soul will come with him and join my body, which is resurrected, and I will be, and if you are alive when he comes back, you will be instantly transformed. That's 1 Corinthians 15. We will not all sleep. We will not all sleep. Some of us will be alive when the Lord returns. And when those who are alive, 1 Corinthians 15, will be caught up, will be instantly transformed. This mortal must put on immortality because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And this perishable must put on the imperishable. So we will be transfigured or transformed instantaneously from mortal to immortal, from perishable to imperishable. And then all of the church, all of us, will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Now I hope that happens. I hope that happens when I'm standing in a graveyard. Because I want to see that happen. I want to see. I want to watch that. I don't want to be asleep when it happens. I don't want to be out working in my garden when it happens. I want to see the, the instant resurrection, the physical bodies, and then being caught up together. And that happens in, it's a nanosecond, in the twinkling of an eye. Peg. No, I don't. I don't. But I hope that it coincides with me being in a graveyard. And especially a graveyard where people that I know are Christians are buried, because that would be fun. So that uh, at the end of the tri- at the end of the the millennial reign of Christ, there is another resurrection. So back to verse seven: When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So there is a there is a revolt a a rebellion at the end of this millennial reign of Christ. Now, entering into the millennium, how many people are believers? Marilyn had it. All of them. Everybody who enters into the millennium are believers. Because Matthew chapter 24, all of the unbelievers are taken away in judgment. So the millennium begins with only believers. And you have a mixed bag of believers. You have believers in resurrected bodies. You have believers that have endured through the tribulation and have made it who are not in resurrected bodies. Now you say, how can resurrected people exist with non-resurrected people? Jesus existed here in his resurrected body with non-resurrected people, right? It's not a problem. Can resurrected beings inhabit this time-space continuum? Sure they can. They did when Jesus was here, and they will for all of each, for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Christ. Over the course of a thousand years, these people who entered into the millennium as believers will have children, they will have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, at the end of a thousand-year period of time, generations will have gone by. Multiple generations of time will have gone by. And during this thousand-year period of time, you have coming to pass all of the promises of the Old Testament saints, the lion laying down with the lamb and the child and the playing with the vipers, the curses lifted. All of that stuff is gone. It's not entirely lifted because we, st- we still are living on an unredeemed planet. But the effects of sin are mitigated to a degree that we can't even imagine now. And... This goes on for a thousand years, at the end of which Satan is released, and he goes out and he deceives the nations. Now, do you think that there will be people living on the face of planet Earth who, at the end of a thousand-year period of time, who have lived under the reign of Christ, as just and as good and as holy and righteous and true as that will be, that they will revolt against that and be quick to try and overthrow that kingdom? Why would they do that? They hate the light, right? They're still These people will be unredeemed people who hate the light. 
And I think that one of the reasons the millennium is in the plan of God and one of the reasons that that's going to unfold is to show to creation, to all men, to angels, that man, even under a perfect government, a perfect government, will still revolt against the truth, even if they have lived under it for a period of time. They hate the truth that much. So at the end of that thousand-year period of time, there is another resurrection. Uh, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne. So this is after that, after the deep beast and the false prophet have been thrown in, after Satan has been thrown into the lake of fire. I saw a great white throne. So are we going to stand before the great white throne and be judged? No, we're done. That, this is not for us. This is for the people described here in verse 11 and following. And him who sat upon it and whose presence heaven and earth fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. They're judged for their deeds. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the judgment of all unbelievers at one time. So believers are resurrected in stages or phases, as it were, Christ being the first fruits, the rapture, right before the millennium. And then you've got to ask yourself, what about believers who are believers at the beginning of the millennium who died during the millennium? When do they get their resurrected bodies? You can flash that out, flesh that out however you want. I don't think Scripture's all that clear. I think it happens one of two ways. Either they will die and be resurrected at the end of the millennium, which we don't read anything about, or they will be instantly transfigured at death and be resurrected instantly during the millennium and get their resurrected body then. Either one of those two would be possible. It would be kind of weird. You would you would die and be resurrected instantly, which is in a millennial reign of Christ with him being there. It it there's nothing during the millennium. I think in Isaiah it says he who dies at what is a hundred years old will be like a child, because people during the millennium, without the effects of the curse as it is today, during the reign of Christ, will be living much longer lifespans than we experience today. So people will die during the millennium, not resurrected saints, not resurrected people, but the mortal or perishable people will die. Very risky occupation. Yeah, mining, roofing, gun cleaning. Yeah, Marsha? Not in the way, no, that's, that's where the Old Testament prophets describe the lying laying down with the lamb. There are effects of the curse which are lifted during the millennium. But we, it's not, it's not the new heavens and the new earth. It's not the paradise. It's not no curse. It's not no sin. There will still be people sinning during the millennium. But what will be different is you will have unbelievers sinning during the millennium, but then the person sitting on the throne is the absolute truthful ruler, just judge who knows everything. So people are not going to be able to get away with sin. There will be no cold cases. We don't know who murdered that individual. Justice will be done, and it will be done swiftly and immediately and, and justly. Parts of the curse have been lifted, but you still have sinners living in the millennium. You still have believers in the millennium. People elect in the millennium. Some would be elect and some non-elect, or some would some would yield to the Christ and some would not yield to Christ. 
you would still have, yeah, because at the end of the period of, of the thousand years, you have a revolt that takes place. So you have unbelievers at the end of that thousand years who cannot wait to try and overthrow his rule again, which man has been trying to do since the very beginning, and the millennium is no different. It's, I mean, this is man's pattern. And what the millennium shows is that no matter what conditions you put men in, it does not matter how good of a condition, man is not a product of his environment. Our environment does not make us sinners. The millennium just shows that even in a perfect environment, mankind's still wicked enough to try and overthrow truth when he sees it. And he hates the light. So yeah, you have people during the millennium who would be born and who would get saved, and you have people during the millennium who would be born and who would reject that truth as long as they could and die in unbelief or even um, live through the millennium and end up trying to overthrow the righteous king at the end of that time period. Steve. It's not the, it's not going to be, no, it's not the kingdom of heaven in the sense of the final heaven, which is the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. Um, no, I would say he wasn't, wasn't. Nor is he referring to the kingdom of heaven as we experience it now because we certainly have inherited it even though we're in flesh and blood. But we cannot receive the full consummation of all that the kingdom of heaven means in flesh and blood. You have to have a resurrected body to get into that. So now, you got the timeline. We have a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. So in the end, who gets a resurrected body? Everybody gets a resurrected body. Now see, this blew my mind when I first realized this, and I don't think that I clued into this even when I was in Bible college. Everybody gets a resurrected body. There are bodies which are resurrected that are fit for eternal life, eternal bliss, eternal joy, eternal heaven. And there are bodies that are fit for eternal destruction which will never be consumed. They will never be consumed. They are eternal bodies. So Hitler will spend eternity in a physical body. In a physical body. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, good point. Nowhere in Scripture does it speak of soul sleeping. No such thing as soul sleep. When you die, you go instantly to be with Christ in a... I think probably an immaterial state, just, just, just out of your body, but with the Lord. And this body goes into the grave and becomes a, a carnival for worms. That's Spurgeon's terminology. He's so flowery, wasn't he? <clears throat> so, yeah, okay, another, any other question about that? Everybody gets an eternal body. Okay, so now let's talk about um, how do we apply this theology, because there's there's two things that I want to sort of... I'm going to get over here out of the light, sorry. There's two things that I want to, to sort of crystallize in your thinking. First is the eternal state that we're going to spend eternity in, because that deals with the bodily resurrection. The bodily resurrection applies to that. And second is, what are the implications of a bodily resurrection, and what is our resurrected body going to be like? What is my resurrected body going to be like? So let's deal with what is the resurrected body going to be like. And I'm not talking about unbelievers because other than knowing it's eternal and other than knowing it will never be consumed, we don't know much about the resurrected body of the unbelievers. We do know that it's a body, it's physical, it will be their body that is raised, and they will spend eternity in it, and it will never be consumed, and it will be fit for their just punishment for all of eternity. Which, by the way, I think is why one of the reasons, and Jonathan Edwards was the first one who sort of suggested this or really crystallized this, one of the reasons that hell is, is eternal is because people in physical bodies in hell will not stop sinning for all of eternity. So even if you could pay for a sin that you committed here on earth, 
in your resurrected body, in eternity, in hell, you will continue to sin. And how will the unbeliever continue to sin in hell? Will the lust of his flesh be gone? No. Will his unregenerate cravings be gone? No. Will his unregenerate mind be gone? All of it will still be there. And he will shake his fist at God for all of eternity. And every punishment for every sin he's ever committed will just bring on more vitriolic hatred to the king of the universe for all of eternity. Unbelievers, I believe, will continue to sin in hell because they will still hate him. And they will hate him for all of eternity. And that will never change. And the more he punishes them for their hatred of him, the more they will hate him. And that will go on forever. But now to the resurrection of the believer, the righteous, what will our bodies be like? Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 while Thomas is asking a question. Well, that would, that would be assuming that, that in hell your punishment can increase because of your sin in hell. Which I don't know that it will. I guess it might or it could. But if Hitler is forever outpacing Saddam Hussein in his sinning in hell, then they will never, they will never, no matter how far they, both of them go, they'll never equal each other. Okay, good, good question. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Beginning at verse 35, we'll, I'll read the passage, explain it just a little bit, and then we will, uh, I'll sort of give you an analogy and ask you some questions to help you kind of picture this. 1 Corinthians 15:35. But someone will say, now this is after Paul, of course, has argued for the reality of Christ's resurrection and what the implications of that are for us. If he is raised, then we also will be raised, right? If he has not been raised, then the dead are not raised, and thus we will not be raised. So all of 1 Corinthians 15 is not just about the resurrection of Christ. It's about the resurrection of our own mortal bodies. Verse 35, But to someone will say, How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? You fool. You ever ask that question, by the way? What's my resurrected body going to be like? Paul's answer, you fool. Make you feel good or what? For asking the question? Why does he call them foolish in verse 36? I think because the question that he asked is asked in the position of the critics of the resurrection, and they were saying, come on, how is this even possible, and what's our body going to be like? How can you postulate a bodily resurrection? What's that going to look like? And there, that question is asked, the question of verse 35 is asked very sarcastically and very skeptically. So that's why Paul responds the way that he does. He's not responding to our, our curiosity about resurrected body. It's the criticism that there can't be a resurrection. I mean, come on, what's that body going to look like? So verse 36, you fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. Now, follow that analogy. Just this last week, I went out and planted my peas and my lettuce. Now, when I put the pea in the ground, it wasn't the pea plant, was it? I didn't bury the whole plant. What did I bury? I buried the pea. But what's going to come out of the pea? So, something different? This pea seed. What's going to come out of the pea seed? A pea plant, right? Not a corn plant, not a rose bush, not a peach tree, nothing else. It's going to be a pea, pea plant. So what is sown, what is sown, what is sown has a one-to-one correspondence to what comes out. That's the analogy. You sow this and you're going to get something out of that. The, the identification connect, the connection of identity is there between what goes into the ground and what comes out of the ground in resurrection. Verse 38. But God gives it a body just as he wished and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. 
There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So there's two different analogies that are given. One is of the seed that is planted, which comes forth in a plant, which is identified with the seed. The plant is not different in identity than the seed that's planted. They are the same, but two different forms. Same thing with the resurrected body. What goes into the ground is the same as what is raised, but two different forms of the same body. And that's key. When Jesus said to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise up a brand new one, totally unlike this, unlike anything you've ever seen. Did he say that? No, he said, I will raise it up. This body, he was speaking of this body, the temple of his body. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise this temple up. It wasn't a brand new thing. It was the same thing in a different form, like the correlation between a seed and the plant that comes from the seed. And in the resurrection, there are different levels of glory. We have the glory of our sun. We have the glory of other suns. We have the glory of the moon, glory of different stars. Glories differ in glory. I do not believe that all of the saints will enjoy the same level of glory for all of eternity. I do not expect to shine as brightly as Paul or Spurgeon or Luther or Calvin or Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards or a million other Christians or millions of other Christians. And then there will be some who got saved by the skin of their teeth at the last moment, right before they died, who did nothing, who will enjoy the resurrection and eternal life, who will not shine as brightly as people sitting in this room who have served life for, served Christ for all their lives. So a star differs from star in glory, so it is with the resurrected body. Not every resurrected body is going to be equal. Not, every, not the glory of every resurrected body is going to be equal. And I believe is the point of that, the last part of that passage. Does everybody make sense so far? Okay. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body. That's the one you're sitting in now. It's raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a supernatural body or spiritual body. But spiritual simply means controlled by the spirit or supernatural in a sense. It's sown very naturally. It's raised very spiritual or supernatural. Um, if there is a... We're still in verse 44. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving soul. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. The spiritual is not the first, but the natural, then the spiritual. In other words, we're natural now. We will be spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so are those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. There's a correspondence between us and Christ as our heavenly man is. So we will we be in resurrection as is the earth, uh, verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. That's speaking of our resurrected body. Then verse 50 begins the mystery. We will not all sleep, right? Well, we will all be changed. Not all of us are going to suffer death in order to get the resurrected body. Some of us who are alive when the Lord returns will be instantly transformed, and that's what the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 is about. So what is our resurrected body going to be like? Let me ask you this question. I'll answer it this way first. It's going to be just like the body you have now, but supernatural, more powerful, and glorious. But it's going to be the body you have now. There's a one-to-one correspondence between the body you're going to put in the ground that's going to become a carnival for worms and the body that ends up becoming a resurrected body that you spend all of eternity in. A one-to-one correspondence. It's the same body, not a different body. God is not going to create a different body for us. It's going to have a, it's going to bear the image of this body in some way. It's going to be like this body in some way. Let me ask you this question. The body that you have right now, is it the same body you were born with? Think carefully. Everybody would say yes, right? No? Don says no. Okay, Don, when did you change bodies? Every seven years? 
with, with your underwear, whether you need it or not, right? Every seven years, the, the cellular structure of your entire body. Okay, so is the body that you have now the same as the body that you were born with? Yes and no, it's not, is it? It is the same body, right? Because you never changed bodies. But I can guarantee you that there is not a cell in your body that you have right now that was there when you were born. Okay, the resurrected body is going to be this body. But it's not going to be this body. In the same way that the body you live in now is the same body but a totally different thing than the body you were born with. The same is true, I believe, with the resurrected body. It is not a different body that we get. It is this body, resurrected, made new. Are we going to have memory of our life on earth? Jess almost had a question, but then he cowered down. Did it, was it with that question? Okay. Are we going to have memory of our life on earth? I believe, yes, we will. And I believe not only will we remember life on earth, we will remember it better than we remember life on earth on earth. Can we forget? <laughs> well, can we forget? I don't know, I don't know that we will be able to forget or that we will need to forget in heaven. Um, what's that? There's a point where the tears are wiped away in heaven. That's true. But does that require that I forget all of the bad things that happen? And there's not a moment of my life that has not been somehow clouded in sin. So in order to forget all sin, everything that I've done that's happened bad or everything that's happened that's bad, it would re- I mean, what would I remember entering into heaven? Jess? Hold on. Jess? Yeah. But part of, part of what makes heaven free from tears and sorrow and remorse is the perspective that we have in heaven. Not necessarily that we forgot everything that caused the sorrow or the pain or the remorse. It's going to be the perspective. We're going to know that our unsaved friends and family members are suffering the torments of hell. We're going to know that. But it's not going to cause us pain or sorrow there because of our perspective. We're going to understand righteousness. I mean, you think you understand God's righteousness now? Not even close. In heaven, we will understand his righteousness. It will be the perspective that all of a sudden, all of the clouds are gone. I see everything clearly. And now I, I, don't, I don't need to weep like that because I see them as they are in truth. I see me as I am in truth. I see God's righteousness and his justice as it is in truth. I see the eternal perspective as it is in truth. There's no need to cry. What makes me cry now is the lack of understanding certain things. That's what brings me tears. I don't understand certain things. It's, my, it's what less rests in the shadows that is the lack of understanding which causes the sorrow. But the eternal perspective, it's wiped away. All of a sudden, everything, all the justice is done. Death is the last enemy. It's conquered. The judgments have taken place. The resurrection of everybody. We see everything as it is. And from that point forward, no more tears. There's no need for them. Run. First. A different perspective. Yeah. Lynn? Well, okay, look at it this way. That, that's a good comment, but let me put, let me put eternity in this perspective here. Could I be able to magnify the grace of God and thank Him for forgiving such a wretch like me if for eternity I had no remembrance of what kind of a wretch I was or anything I did that was wrong? Would I be able to do that? No. I think that everything, this is what gives significance to everything we do. 
See, the Greeks and the the Greeks and the Platonists, they say that once you're liberated from the body, all of this is, ends in f- true freedom, fr- true joys, to be liberated from this body. The Epicureans, the Greek philosophers, the Stoics, they would say, it doesn't matter what you do in the body, eat, drink, and be merry. But Paul says, you can't just eat, drink, and be merry, because why? There's a resurrection. So we live what we do here in light of the resurrection. I don't eat, drink, and be merry and just live like I want. Why? Because I'm going to be resurrected. What I do has implications for my life. In eternity, I'm going to remember this life. I'm going to live my eternity in light of what I did here. That gives significance to what we do. We, we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness because it has reward not just for this life, but also for the life to come. There's something in the life to come that's going to pay off for living a disciplined, holy, godly life now. So the resurrection gives significance to what I do in the flesh here. I can't just do whatever I want in the flesh and sin in the flesh and and just live as I want, like an Epicurean or a Stoic. I can't just live like that, a hedonist. Why? Because I'm going to be resurrected. And for all of eternity, my life here is going to carry significance in some fashion. So I don't think I'm going to forget my sin. I think that I'm going to spend eternity looking at what God saved me from and saying, glory be to the Lamb, that He saved a wretch like me, that He forgave me of that. And my, that will accentuate my praise to him. It doesn't motivate me. Now somebody might say, well then go out and sin more so that you have more to praise him for for all of eternity. But that's just not the right perspective. Brian, Brian was first and then Thomas. And that, that's the, that's the likeness between Christ being the first fruits of it and we will be made just like him. That's, that's the goal. Well, it, it answers it so far as to know that, that there's, that the, my glorified body is going to be this body resurrected again. I know that much. I know that it's going to be powerful, glorious, spiritual, controlled by the Spirit. I know it'll be free from the flesh. I know that it'll be eternal. These things generally we can know. Um, yeah, will we be able to walk through walls? Look, I don't think so. We could go to John, the end of John, where Jesus appeared in the midst of the people in the locked room. I don't think it was walking through walls. On the road to Am- Mar- Am- uh, um Thank you. When Jesus disappeared... From in front of them, he broke the bread, they recognized him, and he disappeared. Nobody suggests that he got up and he walked through a wall. He just disappeared. And I believe that in this realm, he had, as the God-man, the ability to do that. Now, will I have the ability to appear and disappear on this earth during the millennium? I don't know. I'm not the God-man. I will have a resurrected body, and it will be a physical body. Whether it has all of the capabilities to do what God is able to do in a resurrected body, I don't know. I don't know that. Jess? Oh, Thomas was first, then Jess. Sorry. I think our memories are going to be clearer in heaven than they are here of everything that happened. We're going to remember everything but on a higher level. Why? Because Jess and I will be able to sit down and have long conversations about how God sanctified us and what happened and how God was working out this marvelous plan. And we're going to grow in our understanding of God for all of eternity as we talk with one another and spend time with one another. Um, somebody else had one after. Oh, it was Jess, yeah. I want to deal with one other thing real quick before we move on. Go ahead. Every thought, every examination of what we do here will turn our praise back to God. And everything we remember will be an opportunity to go back to Him. It should be that way now, but it's not. I mean, everything we should, everything we do experience and think of here should turn our thoughts back to the Lord. But how often do we get up and, man, a beautiful day, and then we go on, we get ready, we go on about it, and we never really direct that praise to him. It happens more often than not that we just... Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very good. 
Okay, so now, the, the, one of the implications of bodily resurrection, I wanted to handle the subject of cremation and how that ties in, because there is a, there is a connection between the theology of bodily resurrection and cremation. And I also wanted to handle the subject of heaven and what heaven is going to be like. But let's deal with this. Let's deal with the assumptions that most people have, most Christians have, concerning material things. We have an assumption in our minds. I'm just going to deal with this quickly, and maybe we'll do this next, maybe we'll take it next week again as well and do part three. But I don't know, we'll see how it goes. Most Christians have an assumption in their mind that everything material is wrong, evil, inherently evil, and everything spiritual is good. And so if anything exists here, it cannot be good because it's physical. And that heaven must be, or the ultimate state, would be a disembodied spirit where nothing is physical, right? And so we picture things like, we hear, read in Scripture things like um, streets of gold and a city made for us and new heavens and new earth, and we think, how can that be spiritual? How can that be holy and righteous and good? All those physical things. But Christianity is the only worldview and it's the only religion that exalts the physical creation and believes that God's ultimate aim in Genesis 1-1 was to create a physical paradise where he would dwell with his people for all of eternity physically. Adam and Eve screwed that up. Christ died on the cross to resurrect and redeem not only us, our spirits, but our bodies and all of creation. All of creation groans under the curse. Animals, trees, and plants, and all of creation will be resurrected. Does that mean my, my pets will be resurrected? I don't know about that. But I think if you look at what how Revelation describes, Revelation 21 and 22 describes the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, it's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So new stars, new suns, new moons, new planets, new galaxies, new nebulas, new trees, new ground, streets of gold, cities, hills, mountains, snow, weather, air to breathe. It's going to be a physical creation. It's going to be more physical than what we experience and live with here. More physical. We're going to enjoy the physicality of that more. And it's going to be without the, without the sin curse. And the new heavens and the new earth in the same way that the, there's a one-to-one correspondence between the resurrected body and the physical body that dies, so there is a one-to-one correspondence with the new heavens and the new earth and the new the earth here that will be dissolved with flames. It's not new in time as if God destroys it all and creates something entirely new. This whole cosmos will be resurrected. Physically. And you will dwell in a physical body on a physical planet with Christ in a physical body and you will enjoy physical activities and physical enjoyments, physical pleasures, physical experiences for all of eternity. That's the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean there's going to be music? Why not? Instruments? Why not? Creativity? Production? Invention? Exploration? Travel? Why not? These things happen on the physical planet today. Why do we assume that because... It's physical, that it's evil. When God's intention is to resurrect the entire cosmos, everything groans under the curse, everything, waiting for its liberation. This world waits for the consummation when it will be renewed. Just like this body longs for a new body, this whole creation is groaning, Paul says, under the curse, waiting to be resurrected. If you think that the difference between your physical body and your resurrected body is going to be magnificent, and it is, it's going to be incredible, Wait till you see the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, read Revelation 21 and 22. And don't think that he's just trying to describe all these, you know, spiritual concepts. And don't metaphorize it and figuratize it and spiritualize it and allegorize it and all of that stuff. 
Just read what John says that he saw. The new heavens and the new earth is a mind-blowing place. It's going to be incredible. And we're going to dwell there with all the saints from all the ages, for all of eternity, in physical bodies. Will there be sports in heaven? Why not? Because both teams win, Thomas says. Why can't you lose in heaven? Can you lose without sinning? Is there anything inherently sinful about losing a game? No, you ought to be able to lose without sinning. Can you win without sinning? You should be able to win without sinning. Why can't you have competition in heaven? Is there anything inherently sinful about competition? No. Why is it not perfect? It'll be a perfect environment, a perfect game. There will be no cursing the refs, no saying that game was robbed because he didn't see that. It will be a per- everything will be perfectly fair. That's right, and I will be able to beat you without you sinning. That will be the beauty of it. Will there be economics and commerce in heaven, and buying and selling and trade? If there's a New Jerusalem and it is a city, what goes on in cities? I believe that on the new heavens and new earth, there will be arts and entertainment and music and creativity and productivity and economics and trade and commerce and people buying and selling and us exercising the dominion that God created us to exercise. We will exercise that dominion for all of eternity over all things, animals included, for the first time since Adam fell. We will all experience that. But all of that goes back to a bodily resurrection. What type of beings will we be? Will we be bodily beings, physical beings for all of eternity, living on a physical earth, in a physical cosmos that has been physically resurrected, and we will dwell with Christ, who will also be in a physical body for all of eternity. He will be God manifested in the flesh, and we will talk with him and come to him and see him and worship him and thank him and have lunch with him and do everything else that people do. That has been the aim of God since Genesis 1.1. And everything between Genesis 1.1 and Revelation 20, all of that was the corruption of it. Revelation 21 and 22 is the ultimate fulfillment of men living in physical bodies with God in paradise for all of eternity, exercising dominion over the creation. But that all goes back to the physical resurrection. And if Christ be not risen, then none of that is our hope. But if he is risen, then all of that is our hope. Does that make sense? Okay, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful for the hope that we have in Christ. It truly boggles our mind all that you have prepared for us and that you have, have given to us and all that Christ has purchased for us. We pray that these things would serve to excite our hearts and excite our hearts in adoration and praise of you who have given all these things to us. Your word tells us these things. We don't take that seriously enough oftentimes. We pray that you would um, excite us to that end, help us to think about these things and to set our thoughts and affections on heaven where our citizenship truly is. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.